Whenever I read a book or a story about an epic road trip, I always imagine it happening around the end of August. It just seems like the perfect time. So just in case you're planning a late summer road trip over the next few weeks, check out this advice from the September issue of Popular Mechanics. It comes from Tony Sizemore, one of Willie Nelson's tour bus drivers for more than 40 years. If you know you have to make an exit or make a turn on a particular street, look at your map before you get in the car and memorize the names of the streets just beyond the one you need to turn on. That way, if you suddenly notice one of those names as you're driving, you'll know you need to turn around. This week's episode is a super useful grab bag of things you should know as your summer winds down. First, we talk to Joe Conlon, technical advisor to the American Mosquito Control Association, about how mosquitoes choose their victims and how to make sure that you're not one of them. Then, an expert from HGTV Magazine stops by to teach us how to buy a houseplant. We test e-bikes in Central Park, and editorial assistant James Lynch teaches me to throw a Frisbee, which, let me tell you, is no small feat. There's not much summer left, y'all, so get it while the getting's good. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. We have with us on our podcast today Joe Conlon, who is the technical advisor for the American Mosquito Control Association. Hi, Joe. Hi, how are you? And we also have Peter Martin, who is a veteran of being bit by mosquitoes. Is there anybody who's not a veteran of being bitten by mosquitoes? Certainly not me. Yeah. So basically the reason we decided to do this is everyone knows that getting bit by mosquitoes is not great. They transmit malaria. There's that whole like Bill Gates thing about how they kill more people than sharks. But none of us really understand like why mosquitoes target different people. So my first question is, why do mosquitoes bite some people and not other people? Like, is there a reason for that? Actually, there's a great deal of research that's going into that right now. Most of the indicators point to the fact that people are genetically different in the odors that they exude from their skin due to metabolizing fats and stuff inside their bodies and the flora and fauna, the bacteria and fungi on their skin exude some odors too. That's how your dog can tell you from something else because you just smell different. It's the same thing with mosquitoes and certain people put out more of these volatiles than others. Larger people tend to put out more of these volatiles than others. So there's a distinct genetic component to it, but it's a very, very complicated process how mosquitoes locate a person and determine them to be a meal. And does anyone know what benefit that has for the mosquito? Well, the female mosquitoes need to take in blood meals in order to develop eggs. Okay. For actual meals themselves, both male and female mosquitoes imbibe plant nectars. Oh, I had no idea. So they could be eating something other than us. Well, actually, there's a number of mosquitoes that feed only on reptiles. There are some that feed only on birds. They have a wide variety of host preferences. Another question I had is, how did you get into mosquitoes? Like, how does a person get into being a mosquito expert? Well, actually, I was a preventive medicine technician in the U.S. Army, in the 2nd Armored Division, Fort Hood, for three years. And while I was there, I developed an interest in insects and snakes. And then when I got out of the Army, I went through the GI Bill and got all my degrees at college, got out of that, and joined the Navy as a medical entomologist. And one of our primary duties was dealing with malaria and the other diseases that mosquitoes transmit overseas to the Marines. So I came to it because, you know, I like insects. But I like insects that can hurt you or kill you. (laughs) And it just fascinates me that one of the least of God's creatures has wrought so much havoc on humanity. I had read that things like citronella don't really help much. And then I happened to, before we got on the phone with you, I walked by somebody's desk and saw Consumer Reports, which coincidentally you have contributed to, um, (laughs) to this article. They pointed out that things like citronella don't work that much. Their findings were, there were three ingredients that actually helped out, and those were DEET, something called picaridin. Picaridin. Picaridin Mm -hmm. and oil of lemon eucalyptus. Correct. 
So something like citronella, we feel good because we light it, but it's not actually doing anything for us. Well, it's it's a mild repellent. Okay. So it does have some repellent properties, but we shouldn't kid ourselves into thinking that it's the sole answer because it isn't. There are a number of different repellents out there, and I would suggest to any of the listeners here that they purchase a repellent that's registered with the Environmental Protection Agency. Because if it's registered with the Environmental Protection Agency, that means that they can guarantee at least two hours of protection. If it's not registered, you have no idea whether it works or not. That's not to say that some of these things that are advertised over the Internet don't work. I'm just saying that they haven't proven it in peer-reviewed, double-blind studies to the EPA. Yeah. This EPA certification, can you just find that online, like you go to epa.gov and search mosquitoes? Yeah, search on mosquitoes and repellents, and they've got a list there of all the repellents that they have registered. Like There's 170, I believe, different DEET products that they have registered, Picaridin, I think there's like 15 picaridin products and seven oil of lemon eucalyptus products. But if you're in the store, just look at the ingredients section on the can or the lotion, and it should have an EPA registration number. If it's got that number, it tells you two things, that it's going to give you at least two hours of protection, and number two, that if you use it according to the label specifications, there's no undue risk to you in terms of uh, human health. Do all those three ingredients, the picaridin, the DEET, and the lemon oil of eucalyptus, do they all work the same? Pretty much so, yes. What they do is they mask your odors from the mosquito. So the mosquito doesn't smell you and think of you as a potential host. Oh, so you just like makes you invisible, kind of? In a way, yes. Okay. You know, there are a number of things that do eat mosquitoes. But if they left the world tomorrow, the ecosystem would probably hiccup stumble a bit and then carry on. And something even worse might take its place. But mosquitoes don't serve any particular function other than they fill a niche that if they went, something else might fill the same niche. (laughs) The Consumer Reports mentions that a lot of the repellents that work on mosquitoes work for ticks too. Is that because both ticks and mosquitoes are seeking out the same scents and if they're covered up, they're not going to find you? In many cases, yes. As a matter of fact, I did my master's thesis on ticks. Oh, Oh, perfect. If you're utilizing DEET, Utilize a 30% formulation of DEET. That gives you the maximum protection from both ticks and mosquitoes. If you're utilizing picaridin, use at least a 15% formulation. A 15% formulation will be both repellent to mosquitoes and ticks. The 10% formulation won't repel ticks. Oh, okay. that's great advice. And the same thing with oil of lemon eucalyptus, utilize about a 40% formulation of that. And it'll repel both ticks and mosquitoes. Yeah, this is great advice. I feel like I'm never going to get put by a mosquito ever I again. do feel much more optimistic in going outside next time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and telling us all this. I feel much more safe now. Our special guest on the podcast today is courtesy of Peter's Home Renovation Project. I don't even know how this happened. Home Decoration Project. Okay, Home Decoration Project. Yeah, we share the floor with HGTV, so these wonderful people are right next to us all the time. And one of their editors is helping us decorate our apartment. That's very nice of her. So the next step was plants, and so I went to Jamie, who's helping us. So that's Jamie Clayton, who is HGTV's senior editor, who recently did a story about houseplants. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we kind of pulled a little bit of the office about what questions people had about houseplants. And the biggest one at Popular Mechanics, surprise, surprise, is what do you do if you kill everything you touch? (laughs) What do you do if you're better at computers than plants? Well, if you talk to experts about easy care plants, a lot of them will say the spider plant, which kind of overflows, it spills out of the pot as soft leaves, or a snake plant stands up straight. Right. Yeah. I think the snake plants are kind of ugly. 
It's just like five I also think they're kind of sticks ugly. of green. They're not the cutest yeah. out there. So one that I think is cuter is a ZZ plant, and it also has waxy leaves, but looks a little cool. Maybe we can put a picture up for Yeah, we for can put that on our uh, Twitter. Put it on Instagram. Instagram, yeah. <laughs> the, the letter Z. The letter Z. Z. Correct. Okay. It has a much longer scientific name nah. that I won't even try <laughs> to pronounce. That is, never mind. You don't need it. You won't want it. Yeah. So that one, though, I think the only way to kill it is to overwater it, which is great. How frequent is overwatering, though? That's the thing. Overwatering is hard because it depends on the plant. So what you should do is know how much water your plant needs and then get used to feeling the soil. If you put your knuckle into the soil just a little bit below the surface, you could feel how dry it is. And then if you know how dry or wet the soil should be, that'll give you a clue as to how often you should be watering it. And it should be not like saturated wet, just like moist wet if you put your knuckle in there. There's a little moisture, but not soaked. Exactly. You don't want mud. Right. Okay, so what about if you have like a low light situation? ZZ plants are great for that. Okay. Maybe we just end ZZ plants. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, I would say If you're bad at plants, ZZ plants. Calanchoe is another good, it's a succulent type of plant, so it needs a little more light than a ZZ plant, but it's also easy to care for. You don't have to water it too much. But so then is it like once a month? I wouldn't say once a month. People get the best success with succulents when they like spritz it. But then how often do you spritz? Depends on the type. (laughs) That's true. Okay. Because that's the information on those little things that I always lose. The plant tag. Yeah. Yes. You should hang on to those. You can also ask the person at your garden center to tell you because that has been super helpful for me. I'm like a a burgeoning cactus expert. I have lots and lots of cactuses. (laughs) And one of them I kept happy enough that it grew a flower. So I feel like I'm pretty proud of myself here. And I water mine about once a week. I have them in special cactus soil. And then I wait till their soil dries out, and then I water them, and then I leave them alone. Yeah, the plants that like to be left alone are the, the, easier, best, the best ones yeah. to have. Yeah. Yeah. What about in a room that's really bright? So in a room that's really bright, I would first figure out what direction your windows face. Because if you have windows that face east, and it's getting really great light in the morning, that light isn't super strong. So a sunny room doesn't necessarily mean the same thing in one apartment as it means in another And then if your windows face south or west, the afternoon sun might be stronger. So plants that can tolerate that are croton. They're kind of cool looking. Also aloe and ficus. They like really bright. Oh, and aloe can save you after a burn. That seems useful. Yes. I'm sure if it's big enough. So croton? Yeah, croton's cool. They have like yellow How do you spell that? C-R-O-T-O-N. And then what if you want a really big plant, like a tree? (laughs) So... But like inside. So... Other Jamie actually has a fiddle leaf fig by her desk. Oh, she Did talks you? up the fiddle. I think she's going to try to force us to get a fiddle leaf. They've been trending for a while. Like, that's what's in. <laughs> Got to get the hip plants. Like hip the plants. <laughs> you heard it here. Fiddle leaf figs. But they can actually be kind of finicky, though. They're not Uh-oh. always the easiest to care for because I think they're picky about light and temperature. And if you move them after they've settled in, they really don't like that. So you say it's temperature sensitive. It likes it to be hot or not hot? Most houseplants like humidity. So that's just a general thing. I've never kept a fiddle leaf. So all of my windows are above radiators because I live in an apartment, except for one that's in the bathroom, but then you're in the bathroom, so you got to deal with that. So that's part of the reason I have so many cactuses is because I was like, well, if it's going to be 105 degrees above this stupid radiator, I'm going to have a cactus. It's It's working out fine. You have to do the same if you have a plant and you have central air coming out of a vent or something. You don't necessarily want it to get too cold. cold. Oh, Mm -hmm. interesting. So don't put it near the vent. Okay. <laughs> I think so. I'm just trying to take notes for when I go home. A lot of times, too, they shouldn't be right up against the window if they can't take direct sunlight. That's something else okay. to consider. That is true. Plants will scorch yeah. or burn, oh. I have learned. Leaves will burn. So even if it's like bright 
in direct sunlight. It's okay if the room is super bright as long as the sunlight is not hitting the plant directly. Exactly. Okay. You can also do, in terms of plants that are big, you could do a philodendron. There are lots of different types. They're a little wider. Those are like fat heart leaf looking ones, Yeah, heart-shaped leaves. Ooh. (laughs) He's like getting excited. He's like, oh, my living room is going to be so cool looking. So jungly. Yeah, they're a little jungly. They're cool looking, though. Those hang well, right? You can put them in a hanging planter, but I've seen them mostly potted on the ground. Okay. Who's going to do a hanging planter in their home inside? I have one in my room. It's got a pothos in it. I don't know what that is. A pothos? You know about houseplants. I know. I'm like a closet like plant grower. I don't tell anybody, but I have an apartment full of plants. I have a pothos, which is also super hard to kill. That's good. Yes, those are are hard to kill. I feel like we've gotten at least four hard to kill plants mentioned today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jamie, for coming by and teaching us all of this. Of course. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to your favorite podcast at your favorite time for your favorite segment, Wombat Facts. Wombat Facts? It's Wombat Facts. Wombat Facts is my favorite so far. So I'm confused about wombats. I can't decide if they're cute or not. I looked at a lot of photos Ooh, of them. They're right on the line. They yeah. are. I agree. Yeah. They're like kind of beavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. But you also like, you know, they're a rodent. Yeah. Oh, they're super rodent-y. I ate one once. What? You can buy ground wombat in Australia. Oh, in Australia. Is it good? That makes sense. Yeah. It tastes like ground beef. Kind of gamey. Mm. It was good. I made a like a bolognese out of it. <laughs> wombat bolognese. I made a wombat bolognese. Well, you guys haven't had That's that? A, it's a great phrase. <laughs> wombat bolognese. Yeah. So, interestingly, there are lots of wombats in Australia, but there's no consensus on what to call a group of them. So I found variously a colony of wombats, a mob of wombats. Oh, or, best one. Or a wisdom of wombats. The wisdom of wombats. No, <laughs> I vote mob. You've got the alliteration, though, wisdom of wombats. I know. They seem very mob-like to well, me. Well, they can run up to 25 miles an hour, which is, that's pretty mobbish. Yeah. So the most common fun fact that I found in my internet perusal was that wombats have cube-shaped poop. It takes them two weeks to digest whatever they eat, and it comes oh. out. Wait, yeah. so they do not have square buttholes? They don't, no. And that was it was debunked. Oh, people ask that question. I'm glad to know. The hypothesis is that they use their scat to mark their territory, and if it's square, it won't roll off the, uh, the <laughs> stones or whatever. So it's evolutionarily advantageous. But wouldn't that poop. also depend on the shape of the stone? It would. It would. Couldn't they just choose to they poop only mark poop flat on, areas. On, on flat stones? <laughs> But it's because it takes so long to digest. It's very compacted when it comes out. So that's. I'm ashamed I've eaten a wombat now. (laughs) They're magical creatures. Magical. (laughs) May I share my favorite wombat fact? You may. In 2011, the musician Yo-Yo Ma was attending a benefit in Chicago, and he requested a meeting with a wombat named Wilbur. So before he went on (laughs) to perform, there's a picture. We have to tweet it out. It's Yo-Yo Ma lying on the floor of the bathroom, hanging out with Wilbur the wombat. How Why? did we hear of Wilbur? I Who don't Wilbur? know. I looked for these answers and I could not find them. But it's a great photo. Wow. Wilbur the Wombat, Wilbur the Wombat. lives in Chicago? Well, I don't know if he's still around, but in 2011, he's at the, the Brookfield <laughs> Zoo. I don't know why he was attending the benefit. That's a mystery. But wow. he was there. Wow. Yeah. I guess if you're Yo-Yo Ma and you hear there's a wombat and one with a human name in attendance, you got to have a meeting. I feel like if you're Yo-Yo Ma and you're like the guest of honor, you can just be like, you know what? I've never seen a wombat and that's a wombat and I want it. And people will be like, yes, you've practiced your whole life <laughs> for this moment. Here's a wombat. His name is Wilbur. And that's been Wombat Facts.
So we have a segment in the magazine, if you're a regular reader of Popular Mechanics, called Ask Roy. And we do often ask Roy things here in the office. So many things. Yeah, we do. <laughs> but we decided today that we're going to surprise Roy with a live Ask Roy. And Peter Martin's here to do it. I'm braced for the worst. It might be more about my inabilities in repair. Oh. So it's at my in-laws. Their sink leaks. It just drips a little bit. And it's from the hot faucet, from the hot handle. So I figured that out. Open it up, replace the cartridge, and it still leaks. Okay, first question. What's a cartridge? (laughs) (laughs) Somebody who doesn't understand sinks. Cartridge is a plumber's shorthand for the valve that controls the flow of water. Most modern plumbing has this unit that when you take the handle apart, there's this stem that sticks up out of the body of the faucet. Is this making sense? Sort of. <laughs> Mostly. I can picture the stem. Picture two handles yep. on your faucet. Okay. In other cases, you have a single handle. Either way, you're controlling a cartridge. So picture a rolling pin. Okay. Picture the rolling pin vertically. Okay. Now, downsize that rolling <laughs> pin. Make it really, really small. Really small. Okay. And take off the second handle. So there's this tiny rolling pin with a single handle, and that handle is sticking up. Okay. That handle that's sticking up is the stem and on the stem mounts the handle that you turn does that make sense okay yes that does make sense yes peter the hot is normally the part that wears out first. really yeah the hot water just deteriorates the correct hot water is more aggressive so it's going to wear out the hot side first it's also a very old sink. Yeah. The faucet is um, probably from the 80s. Yeah, it almost certainly is time to do a new faucet. What faucets one. match mauve sinks? We're going to have to... Do you have a mauve sink? It's my in-laws... Also, it's mauve. Mauve. Maybe it's orange. I don't know. It's, it's a strange <laughs> color that you wouldn't want now, and it's yeah, a yeah. Old, 80s. older style of faucet. Yeah, I was installing those kitchens and baths in the 80s, and that was like a burnt orange sort of mauve. <laughs> yeah, we have... I'm obsessed with that because I think it sounds so weird, sounds and I read that that's actually accurate yeah. yeah we thought we were being like really cool there was no more avocado green you know <laughs> from the 60s and 70s and finally we were installing like what we thought was pretty hip stuff so at, at a certain point the faucet itself just gets too old yeah. is that because there are gaskets in the faucet that are worn out no but the faucet body itself is a casting mm-hmm. and and it wears out but water is flowing through it now let's also assume by the way that you may need to double-check your installation. Well, I tried it both ways and actually flipped. I replaced both of them because they were both so old. Which is what you should do, by the way. So I tried both on either side when it still dripped and it still did a little bit. One thing that may help or hurt, if you look at it from the level of the sink, if you look at the two handles, the handle on the right that doesn't have a problem is set higher than the handle on the left. So there are those two like crystal ball handles that oh, yeah, those yeah. things have. Mm-hmm. And so one, yeah. one probably has a eighth of an inch clearance and the other one less than half that. Hmm. No, that's certainly troubling. And by <laughs> the way, and I've run into this, the parts do wear. The manufacturers that are making the replacement parts sometimes change over the years. Certainly it's not the same company that built the faucet. Right. There are companies that make replacement parts, and the replacement parts themselves change slightly. They're reasonably accurate, but they're not perfectly accurate. I mean, I've seen actually some pretty substantial differences. Is it a matter of size, too? If this cartridge is a little smaller than the, mm. I don't know what the tube is called that it sits in, but could I put plumber's putty, plumber's grease, whatever that stuff is well, around Well, you're it? supposed to use a little bit of plumber grease in the installation. Around the whole thing? Around what? Yeah, you just slather a tiny bit of it. Now, that is not, in my experience, going to make the difference of a watertight seal. I mean, there are things you can do. You can turn the water off below the sink, you know, so that it's completely stopped on the cold water side. Try it. 
you know, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that can help you isolate the leak. But I'm suspecting here, you know, without seeing it and tinkering with it, I'm suspecting that the faucet body is shot. Okay. Well, I slowed the drip down, at least. Yeah, well, certainly the new cartridge is going to make the difference. But yeah, the casting itself from which that faucet body is made, that it's going to wear out over time. Peter, I wish you could see the wonky sink that I'm imagining that's in your apartment. It's like it's I have a picture like of it. Like a mauve with like crystal balls that aren't even even with each other. I think my advice would be maybe you should replace that sink. I mean, if, <laughs> well. if, it, if it were my home, possibly. Years ago, this is when I was the volunteer property manager at my church, which was built in 1964 and had all kinds of funky stuff still operating in it. There was a drip in the ladies' room sink. Actually, there were two sinks. And I went to repair this drip rip one day and ended up replacing both sinks, both faucets, both traps, the trap arm and everything. Basically, I looked at it and I started tinkering with the faucet and tinkering with the faucet. And then I said, this is a case study in corrosion. And I just said, I'm going to replace the faucet. Nah, I'm going to replace the sink. Nah, I'm just going (laughs) to replace everything. But the good news is that there were two reliable sinks and drains and faucets in the ladies' room. And it's sort of like, yeah, you can get to a point where you just look at it and you're like, no, I'm not going to repair this. I'm just going to replace it and get the whole thing so it's reliable, watertight, you know, and it looks nice. And that's that. Okay. Maybe a new uh, anniversary gift. Yeah. Thank you, Roy. Good job. My pleasure. We're in the park today for a segment we're calling Activities You Can Do While Holding a Beer with James Lynch. Yeah. And we have James Lynch here to teach me, a person who is Frisbee deficient. Kind of disappointed that it's afternoon and we're doing the segment about things you can do with beers in your hands and we are noticeably lacking in the beer Noticeably sober. Well, we do have to go back to work after this. Well, yeah, I've heard it both ways. Yeah. So first, I'm going to show you how I throw a Frisbee. I don't know why I never learned. Do I throw it out, like away from my body, or do I throw it in. So the normal frisbee throw that you all know is called a backhand because when you're throwing it, the back of your hand is going out. And so if you're trying to like play ultimate frisbee or something like that. We should say here that James Lynch played ultimate frisbee. In high school. In high school. B-League champions two okay. years in a row. Sutherland Sugar Daddies. So just saying. Which is how you became our expert. Yes. So if like you're guarding me as you would just like stick your hands out, you have to be able to throw from either side. So like backhand uh-huh. and forehand. Okay. And they're totally different grips. But, like, backhand's the frisbee throw that everyone knows. So let's just do that, right? Okay. The first thing is if your disc's upside down, you're kind of just grabbing the rim of it with a fist. So if you, like, hold it out in front of you, it's upside down. Right, that's perfect. Okay. Bingo, bango. And then the difference is you just stick your finger out down the sideline. Perfect. Okay. Like I'm saying, number one. Exactly. This frisbee is number one. And that pointer finger is going to eventually point exactly where you want to throw. Okay. So now, when you flip it back over, right, you're holding it. All you're trying to do is your arm is, like, rolled back uh-huh. and you want your like your front shoulder pointing towards where you want to throw uh-huh. and then you really just unfurl your arm and the important thing is to finish pointing your finger at where you want to throw and if okay. you just let go when your finger is where you want it to throw you're golden okay all right we're gonna try it what oh that. my god oh my god that is incredible i have never thrown a frisbee in my life did you see what i just did <laughs> it's pretty straight that's pretty perfect wow i'm cured and then the other thing, so we've got the direction, and then it's a matter of trying to keep it on a flat plane when you okay. come across so that it's really easy to throw frisbees straight up in the air. Mm-hmm. And if you do, if you, like, undercut it kind of thing, it'll just go up and come back down at you. Like so, a boomerang. Exactly. Okay. So you want to just point it, like, straight out, throw okay. it straight out. And then as you 
try to put more power in your throw or if you're trying to throw it further, it's just the same motion and you just will have to be just like firmer through with the point. Okay. You can't flail with it. You just got to make sure that point's always coming through. Okay. So Kevin's here. You can't hear him because he doesn't have a microphone on. But he said when he throws it harder, he tends to like hook it or it swerves or goes like way off. How do you fix that? Do you know? Yeah. So if you're throwing it as you start pulling it harder and harder, it's the angle with which the frisbee goes out. So instead of being flat like a dinner plate, it'll come out sideways like it's sliding off a table. And when it does that, the air that catches underneath it is always going to push it oh, in, the- in the direction. So that's how you get those big hooks. So then if you start really ripping on it, sometimes you get your angle off. And oftentimes what the solution to that is you actually throw it not totally flat because that's when it'll pull over. But if you're throwing it harder, you'll tilt it down away from you a bit. And so that when you come through at the extension oh. point, when it's your totally then unfurled, it'll be flat. So that's something you just got to kind of play with your release angle on that and just find out what's right for you. And then, you know, if it's coming to the right on a backhand, you probably want to tilt the disc so that the edge closest to you is higher than the edge away from you. you. Right. Okay. All right. Doing it. Okay. Okay. Wait. I let it go too early. So another thing we work on is you're kind of winding your arm up so it's still in front of you. Yep. Your arm is going to bend, but not that intensely. Instead of curling it in, just pull it back. So turn your shoulders back. Oh, like that. And then you get more power then is through your hips and shoulders as you unwind that. Yes. <laughs> okay. But you got to get that arm straight as you're releasing and make sure you keep that point. The point's okay. the most important thing. I'm still doing better than I was. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, my God. Ooh. I feel like I legit want to, I was going to say buy a Frisbee, but I, this is my Frisbee now. So I might practice. Nice. Your catch form is perfect, too. And then the other thing, like you're getting a lot of backwards turn. Yeah. Like make sure you're looking at me when you're throwing and you're turned, but there's still some. Oh, okay. So that, you know, the eye contact makes it easier to do that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. That last second, your wrist unfurling is where a lot of that power is coming oh, okay. from. So, you know, as you're throwing it harder, the arm and shoulder, everything becomes a lot more important. Okay. Nice. Yes. All right. Like I think that I'm ending on that one. So for forehand, like you said, if you're right-handed, you're throwing backhand from the left side of your body. Yep. And forehand, if you're right-handed, lets you throw from the right side of your body. So that means you can throw from far off either side. Anyway, people also call the forehand the flick, so it's much more wrist action. And so the way you're going to do that is your frisbee's upside down again. You basically make a peace sign with your middle finger index finger, and you line your middle finger up with the outside edge of the frisbee. Okay. And your index finger just points towards the center. Okay. And then you're pinching with your thumb. Okay. Now, you have to, instead of putting your wrist forward, you have to put your wrist back. Okay. And so then what's going to happen, it's a, more of like a slingshotty action where your elbow's going and then your wrist and you're flicking the disc forward. Okay. Everybody get out of the way. <laughs> hey, yeah, absolutely. All right, that was better than anticipated. Instead of holding the, the frisbee high, so instead of your hand being at an upward angle, you want your arm and hand at a downward angle. It's not back here. It's basically it's at your hip. So it's almost in front of me. Right, but I'll like turn, but it's basically just right in front of me, it's not that far. And mm-hmm. instead of like a big wind up back, it's really just a kind of a, like a cocking action. Like you're just pulling that back and putting your elbow forward. And then to throw it, you kind of move your elbow a little bit forward and then flick yeah. your finger. The important thing about this is that you really don't release the frisbee flat, you release it at a like 45 degree angle. Okay. Because as it comes off your middle finger, it gets pulled up to flat. Okay. That's like too advanced for me, but sure. I mean, the important part is just throw it at a little angle. It doesn't go that far back. I can just throw it from there. Okay. Yeah. Oh, all right. Better. The backhand's very easy. The point will always get the frizzy where you want it to go. This is you're feeling it out a little bit more, and it's kind of like your middle finger underneath the frisbee is going to point to where you're. Where you're. Okay. All right. Because I want to. I'm pointing at you. Just you. 
That's good. I think we're good. Nice. Thanks, James. Absolutely. So we're here in Central Park with Jonathan Weinert of Bosch E-Bike Systems, who is going to show us some e-bikes, which are different from regular bikes, I understand. And it's warm today, so I think maybe that's a good sign. Perfect sign, because with an e-bike, you can sweat it out when you want to or up the assist level and go sweat-free. So what we're looking at here is a pedal assist e-bike from Electra. It's the Townie Loft, and it's e-powered by Bosch. It's got an electric motor right in between the pedals, powered by a lithium-ion battery right under you. And we have a display here, so you can see how fast you're going and also how much assist you're getting. And then there's a little controller right by the handlebar. It lets you control how much assist you get. And when I say assist, it's kind of like an electric tailwind pushing you up the road, and now you have the freedom to choose how much tailwind you want, from a little tailwind to a big gust. Is it gonna feel like it's spinning my feet really fast? No, no, it's gonna feel like you're riding a bicycle, but you're stronger, and you can adjust how much strength you're adding to your pedaling. So, like, you're boosting your own human power with electric power, but it what? does it in a very natural way. What does it sound like? I mean, because I feel like I've seen people on these and it's like, it's like a tiny little like motorcycle-y sort of thing. The sound is almost imperceptible. If it's very, very quiet outside, you'll hear a tiny, tiny whir from the motor in the higher levels of assist. But generally on a day like today where there's a bunch of people out cycling and walking, you probably won't even notice the electric motor is on. We've got Kevin and uh, Matt Allen, who's our bike expert in the office here as well. Should we play around and ride them? I think so. Absolutely. So we just got back in the office from riding out in Central Park. We were riding e-bikes out there. I was on one called the Electra Townie Go, which was like a beach cruiser, which was pretty fun. Kevin, what were you on? I was on the Turn Vectron. So Turn makes mostly folding bikes. And this one was like a transformer. It had like two seat adjustments and a handlebar adjustment. So this is a folding bike with the motor. It was really easy to ride. The part that's most noticeably different is when you first start pedaling, whether it's from a complete stop or if you just coast down a hill and you start pedaling again at the bottom, because it's only once you start pedaling that you feel the motor kick in. So it's like sort of like your feet get like an extra push from behind as you first start. It's yeah. weird, but I liked it. Yeah, one thing he described to us that I thought was really cool was it comes from the motor idea for the motor that drives your power steering. So that actually made it make more sense to me because I was afraid it was going to feel kind of like a motorcycle or something and it was yeah. going to just be a lot of power that I was going to freak out about. Yeah, really it doesn't feel it. like a motorcycle yeah. or a scooter at all. Yeah, I really liked it a lot and it was quieter than I thought. What do you think, Madeline? I was riding the uh, Yuba Spicy Curry. Uh, <laughs> These are incredible names. They are. They are. These are going to be our nicknames around the office now. <laughs> spicy Ooh, Curry. I could be spicy. That's great. Um, <laughs> Yuba is a big uh, cargo bike maker. This is a cargo bike. So what that means is behind my seat, there was sort of like a like four or five foot section where they kept going in the bike. You could have a kit or two behind you. There's handlebars to hold on to. Then there's also like real long saddlebags for like a really big grocery run or anything like that. So the idea is it's a bike where you can haul stuff around behind. I'm a long time proponent of e-bikes. I've been using them to commute for a few years. I recommend them. The only big drawback is cost. Okay. Mine was $3,000, the bike that I was on. Mm -hmm. And what yours was something? Mine was $3,400. Yeah. The minimum price I've seen or I've tested for a good e-bike is about $2,500. That was for the Volta. E-bikes can really get expensive fast. You know, we saw one today that was about a $5,000 mountain bike, but that's because you're taking already a good mountain bike and then putting that motor inside of it. And so you sort of have to chalk up the cost of 
you know, adding an entire drive system to a bike that there wasn't one before. Like for comparison, I usually say like bikes that are worth riding start around five hundred dollars. So you're adding, you know, roughly two thousand dollars to that to uh, get a motor on there. Right. We should also add that these are pedal assist electronic bikes because there's a couple different types of e-bikes. They're not all legal every place, but this was one where there's no throttle or anything. It's just that you sort of set how much assistance you want, and then as you pedal, it helps. We talked to the guy that was riding around with us about where these things are popular, and he mentioned that it's places where there's a fair amount of infrastructure and people, and there's a, a long riding season. And it seems like maybe people are using this as like a replacement for a Vespa or something to get to work, same way you are, for example. And it seems like maybe that would be a good investment for some people, that amount of money, if you're using it like that. I think so. I mean, the bikes that uh, are putting motors on, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't be cheap bikes without the motor. I'd written to work about 100 times so far this year on an e-bike for with subway charges that saves me about $600 and we're what eight months into the year roughly right so they will you know for a $3,000 bike you will get five six years of use out of it I also use it to uh, go grocery shopping so long as I don't need to carry anything too huge uh, back in the store right yeah if you had a little basket on the back I do a couple uh, panniers or saddlebags on the back wheel. Okay. So I think we're pretty clear on whether you would buy one. Matt, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kevin, what do you think? I liked it a lot. I think it's probably a little steep for me, especially like living here. I do ride my bike to work sometimes. It's not a particularly challenging terrain. There's, I don't think there's been a time where I didn't ride because it would just be too much work or it'd be too far. But I think if the price came down, like if the motors get cheaper or something or the batteries get cheaper, I would definitely consider it. Because I thought, I mean, the experience was great. I would like you, I was worried that it would feel a little bit unnatural. I like riding bikes, but it didn't at all. Yeah, I think I'm in the same camp as you. I have a bike and I like the fact that I actually get a workout on it on my way to work. And also I know that I wouldn't ride this in the winter because I'm a huge, huge wuss. So (laughs) if I lived in California or if these got a lot cheaper where I didn't mind that I was only riding it five months out of the year, then I would probably buy it. But as it stands, I think I would probably wait. Cool. Yeah. And I would expect prices to uh, keep ticking down. You know, their good bikes were closer to $3,000 a few years ago now. So that's dropped roughly $500 to get a good solid e-bike. Yeah. It's important to note that like these don't take the fun out of biking. It's just different fun. Very cool. So that's our show. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by Brandcasters. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. If you want to read more about mosquitoes, e-bikes, and summer games, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics Magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.